I'm often saying that, you know, we evolved as humans to make and share art for a reason. Like, it does something for us, or we would have abandoned these practices millennia ago. So the idea, basically, we ignore that fact at our peril, <laughs> you know, to our detriment, for sure. Like, why, why did we evolve to do this? And one of the most fascinating aspects of the answer to that for me is that one of the things that the arts does for us is expand our capacity for communication. There are things that we cannot know or think of or um, share or process or bear witness to outside of these um, kind of more expanded ways that we've evolved to be able to understand the universe and ourselves. I'm David Kemperon, and this is Next Level Experience Design. Welcome to episode 61 of the Next Level Experience Design podcast. These dynamic dialogues based on our acronym of DATA, design, architecture, technology, and the arts, crosses over disciplines but maintains a common thread of people who are passionate about the world we live in and humans' influence on it. The ways we craft and build our environments to maximize human experience, increasing our understanding of human behavior, and searching for the new possible. As usual on these episodes, thanks go to VMSD Magazine and Smart Work Media. VMSD is the publisher of VMSD Magazine and brings us, in the brand experience world, the International Retail Design Conference. The IRDC is one of the best retail design conferences that there is, bringing together the world of retailers, brands, and experienced placemakers every year for two days of engaging conversations and pushing the discourse forward on what makes retailing relevant. You'll find an archive of the Next Level Experience Design podcast on vmsd.com. Thanks also go to Shop Association, the only global retail trade association dedicated to elevating the in-store experience. Shop Association represents companies and affiliates from 25 countries and brings value to their members through research, networking, education, events, and awards. Check out Shop Association on shopassociation.org. In a minute, we'll dig into my conversation with Tasha Golden, the Director of Research at the Arts and Mind Lab at Johns Hopkins University. But as a lead into that, a few thoughts on art and how it plays into our lives, health, and sense of well-being. Art and Making are part of our human experience. It's just part of who we are as a species. And I've had this feeling for a number of years and probably expressed it in this podcast a number of times that art and making are intrinsic to us all. There's something unique about the making of things that humans do that is different than other living creatures on the planet. Sure, some other animals in the world make things too. Birds make nests and the great apes do as well. And for some apes, as I understand it, they do that every single night. But the defining feature between humans and the other creatures that make things on the planet is that we make things that make other things. We are homo sapiens, man the thinker, but we're also homo faber, man the maker. And I think we're also equally homo ludens, man the player, 
And I'm sure that there's some deep connection between the idea that the making of things and play are deeply connected in defining who we are and how we come to understand ourselves and navigate the world. When I'm deeply engaged in making things specifically, for example, when I'm listening to music and painting, I'm very aware of the fact that I'm in a flow state that feels like being deeply involved in play. Time seems to disappear, judgment dissipates, the whole feeling seems otherworldly. I think that making, whether objects or stories or music or other manifestations of our creative minds, is just part of who we are. But I also think that we've pushed it to the side, getting up in our heads and believing that if we could only think our way through our lives rather than feeling, that we'd be much better. Sir Ken Robinson had said something like, we're all born creative, and then we just have it educated out of us. And that's a tragedy with huge implications to our world when I think that what we really need is to have super creative solutions to life's current pressing challenges. It seems to me that creativity was a necessary skill to be developed as part of an evolutionary history. Being creative, a good problem solver, was an insurance policy for survival. This is also true of our ability to engage in empathic relationships and collaborative communities. When working together, we were much better able to survive. Millennia ago, being cast out of the group and having to go it on your own in the wild might have significantly reduced your chances for survival. And so, I think making and creating close-knit communities and problem-solving have been with us from time immemorial. So I think beyond making tools and creating shelters and being creative in these ways so as to survive an unpredictable and sometimes brutal world, the arts, at least as we call them now, evolved into a way to express ourselves, our ideological orientations, and our understanding of the world. In some ways, they were an attempt to understand and answer some of the existential questions of what it meant to be human and how we fit into the cosmological scheme of things. The arts in its many forms, sculpture, dance, song, music, and later literature, brought communities together in shared understanding and the meaning of being individuals as well as members of a larger whole. The arts were a vehicle for the expression of ideas, the asking of questions, and the searching for answers. And in many ways, the arts helped us express the ineffable. The arts aligned with our penchant for using narratives to navigate the world. Stories put things into place, and they helped us describe why and how things happened. Cognitive science Roger Shank said, Humans are not ideally set up to understand logic. They're ideally set up to understand stories. And many of those stories we were telling were in the form of the arts, from the paintings on the walls of the caves in Lascaux, France, 17,000 years ago, to the contemporary dance of Martha Graham, to best-selling books, you pick the author, doesn't matter, or immersive digital experiences of media artists like Rafik Anadol. The arts have been, and will continue to be, part of our lives. Without the arts, life would be bereft of meaning. I've often heard people say, oh, I can't draw, I draw like a kid, or I've got no rhythm and I can't dance, or I can't hold a tune. These self-judgmental comments go completely contrary to what we know from science about the value of engaging in art or even doing simple things like humming your favorite tune and the positive effects all of those have on our mind-body state. I find myself humming and singing all the time. Christmas carols in the summer, old 70 classic rock, any day, it doesn't really matter. But humming, and I'm going to suggest maybe it's an ancient art form, plays a key role in activating the parasympathetic nervous system, also known as their rest and digest state. 
Because your vagus nerve, one of the neural superhighways connecting your brain to the major organs in the rest of your body, runs through your larynx and your pharynx in your throat, humming stimulates the vagus nerve and creates what is known as vagal tone. Humming, as simple as it sounds, can also improve heart rate variability, which is an important metric that shows how well you can recover from experiences of stress. So when you hum, you induce something called parasympathetic dominance, which means that you move from a fight-or-flight state into one of increased relaxation. The whole idea here is that bringing arts into our lives, even in the simplest ways, like humming, reconnects us to ourselves and helps support mind-body health and an overall sense of well-being. More and more research is pointing to the fact that engaging in the arts and having a sense of well-being can be directly connected. In fact, a whole emerging field in cognitive science called neuroaesthetics is geared towards the understanding of how the arts, in all of its incarnations, influences how we feel, not just when listening to a piece of music or staring at a painting on a wall in a museum, but how the overall built environment potentially influences our emotional state, which may have a direct effect on our body systems and potentially leading to or preventing disease. So there's a significant problem at hand when arts funding is slashed from school curricula thinking that it's less important than getting our school-aged children ready to compete in the world stage by simply focusing on STEM-based curricula only. Fully integrating the arts into the schools or even our workdays increases learning and company performance. As a personal example, I know I've described this a number of times on the podcast, and at the risk of being repetitive, let's say I'll do it again. But during the pandemic, between 2020 and 2022, I poured myself into painting and writing and doing a podcast, all of which you could qualify as being the arts. I firmly believe that if it weren't for me finding a flow state, a pseudo-meditative experience through painting and listening to music while doing it, that my experience of the pandemic may have been drastically different. I think that in many ways, it might have actually been quite negative and that I might have been a very difficult person to live with. Instead, art gave me a sense of agency in being able to navigate the ambiguity of an uncertain future, engaging in the arts, even if on a small plane of my physical world in the form of a 36 by 48 inch canvas, it gave me a sense of control in a space of time where I didn't think I had any. What I did is I shifted the negative energy of anxiety and fear of the unknown into creativity in the form of a pandemic production of 25 canvases. I was directly exposed to the value and impact of how the arts could be harnessed to create a profound sense of well-being. And so this brings me to my guest, Tasha Golden. Tasha Golden is the Director of Research at the International Arts and Mind Lab at Johns Hopkins University and a national leader and consultant in arts and public health. Tasha has a PhD in public health sciences, and she's published extensively on the impact of the arts, music, aesthetics, and social norms on health and well-being. She has served as an advisor on several national international health initiatives and is an adjunct faculty at the University of Florida Center for Arts and Medicine. And she recently led the pilot evaluation of Culture Rx in Massachusetts, the first arts on prescription model in the U.S., Golden is also a career artist and entrepreneur. She's a singer-songwriter for the critically acclaimed band Ellery, which you'll hear about more in our interview and how she moved from being a touring artist to a research scientist. And she toured full-time in the U.S. and abroad, and her songs appeared in films and TV dramas for ABC and Showtime and Fox and others. 
She's also a published poet and founder of Project Uncaged, a fascinating idea of bringing arts-based health interventions for incarcerated teen women and amplifies their voices in justice reform. Tasha's diverse background as an artist and as a research scientist gives her a leg up as an international speaker and thought leader. She gives talks and presentations and facilitates workshops for artists and businesses, researchers, practitioners, and more. And she helps them enhance and reimagine their work. As a consultant, she helps leaders and organizations draw on the science of the arts and health to further their goals. This is one of those conversations that I literally just scratched the surface on in terms of what's possible when you consider how the arts influences our lives. But I think it's an important one about why we need to put art back into our daily routines as a prescription for well-being. And with that, I welcome Tasha Golden to the Next Level Experience Design Podcast. Hello from oh, Louisville, thank Kentucky. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, from here in Louisville. You know, what's fun is is that uh, our last connection was at the Intentional Spaces Summit in D.C., which was an extraordinary event. It was literally, I think, two days of mind-blowing, you know, um, sessions of which you were one. And we'll get to that later on. I wanted to start off by just talking about your story, because in our, our our previous conversations, it has fascinated me how someone like a singer-songwriter somehow ends up becoming the director of research at the International Arts and Mind Lab. I don't know. Maybe there's a connection there that should be obvious. <laughs> but no, it, it didn't seem happen? to it, no, it didn't seem to me to be so obvious. So why not you share? Uh, because I'm I'm sure as we unpack that story, things will become very clear uh, as we go along. But how did that happen? How do you go from being on the road as a traveling musician with many albums and writing for television and movies and things like that and ending up being a researcher for the Arts and Mind Lab? Yeah, this is definitely not what was in the plan when I started out. I um, I have wanted to be a singer-songwriter since I was a little girl. I'll tell you that I grew up in a, um, in a kind of fundamentalist religious environment where women were not really allowed to have opinions or speak in front of groups, but uh, people really liked when I sang. <laughs> so um, I figured out very early on that if I had something to say and I could figure out how to put it in a song, it was a way that I could not only communicate things that maybe I wasn't personally able to express otherwise. You know, mm. songwriting was a way that I could get things out of me that I didn't know how to express otherwise. But then also it was a way to be heard by people who may not listen otherwise. So I found a lot of um, expressive and creative power in songs from a really young age. And even long after I was um, out of that faith, that the songwriting was still what made me feel like I could process and understand my own human experience and share it with other people and make connections. So went right out of um, undergrad, started touring full time, and it was going really well for many years. Uh, from the outside, things probably looked really great. Like you said, we had songs in TV and film. We were making a record with a Grammy-winning producer. But um, there were a couple things that were happening during that time. One of them was that I started to realize that... Uh, I had songs about things that were difficult in my life, like my own history of depression mm. or my family's history of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And wherever we went in the world, those were always the songs that people lined up after concerts wanting to talk with me about. And they would share their own really personal stories with those kinds of things, abuse histories, suicide, depression, anxiety, and often followed that up by saying that I'm the first person they had ever told. And it happened so often that I couldn't help 
realizing that if I'm the first person they'd ever told, that means they've never told a doctor or a therapist, certainly not a researcher. <laughs> it means that these community services that we have that are designed to meet the needs of survivors or people with mental health challenges aren't reaching these folks because these folks have never felt able to disclose this experience until they were at a music venue with a relative stranger <laughs> and talking so about it. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So I started to wonder, like, what is it that music is making possible here? Why? What is it about a music venue or about a song or a singer that makes it possible here? What? Why is this not possible in a clinician's office? And maybe how do we bridge that divide? And then also simultaneous to that, I just the um, difficulty of the grind of the music industry and um, sometimes the isolation of it, you know, undiagnosed neurodivergence for me, not knowing how to best care for myself, I just really wound up running myself into the ground. So dealing with um, kind of catastrophic burnout, couldn't get out of bed for weeks, let alone play shows, and had to fully reimagine who am I? What am I doing? This is all that I've ever wanted to do. I don't want to do anything else. (laughs) So it was a really um, difficult time of of reimagining who I was and where I was going with with my life. And so I came back to that question of what was happening in music? Why could I and other people share things in music that we couldn't otherwise? And what does that mean to the rest of our lives and to our well-being? And I kept pulling on that thread until I wound up with a PhD in public health sciences with a specialization in how the arts and creativity affect our well-being, both individually and at a population and community level. It's so interesting to me, and I, I thank you for sharing all of that for sure. And I, and I guess what I'm hearing is that trajectory from singer-songwriter, well, leading you to an interesting place is always a, a, a searching for meaning, searching for discovery, searching for context building, searching for the why, maybe, mm. of things. Yeah. But I'm also guessing that when, when one defines oneself as something, singer-songwriter, you know, to and it being the source for contextualism, like you know why I believe in these things and and that people are relating to this very profoundly, which has got to be a sense of validation, which has got to be some sense of of connecting to I'm not alone in this struggle, all yeah. those things that we, we we need to have as a sense of community and a sense of agency, right? I guess I think being able to play music or do art or, or do something that is proactively moving that energy, if you want to call it that, yeah. you know, into yeah. something else. It it must have been, I'm going to presume, I was going to say, it, I, it must have been difficult in the transition from that orientation of my life as a definition of who I am to this other one where did you sense that you were giving something up? Like, was that an active sort of thought process that this is hard to let go of, even though it's not maybe good for me? It's it's just really hard to sort of disconnect and grow into this other place of unknowing, full of very few answers, maybe, right? I, I can oh. imagine it must have been pretty complex. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's a, um, there's a, I have said before that like the path to change is always on the other side of the questions you're not asking. And you know, that's been um, and the reason that my life kind of comes back to that statement is that, you know, in these moments when I knew that I couldn't keep touring, 
but I didn't want to do anything else. The question that was looming there for me was, can I keep doing this? And I knew mm. in my bones that the answer was no, but I wouldn't even let myself ask the question because, you know, for myself, the, the answer was obvious. Like I have to, that was just, it wasn't, it wasn't it's even a question. Who it's who I am. It's who I am. What I've invested all this time and energy into. Yeah. Right. And once you let yourself ask the question, you've already opened your world a little bit because mm -hmm. you've opened your world enough to see that you're not any one thing, that there isn't a question, there is a question there to answer and that there might be, if the, if the question in that case is, can I keep doing this? Mm -hmm. The answer might be no. And in that case, there is some other path or trajectory. You just don't know what it is yet. And I think I've spent, um, you know, the, the time since that really devastating many months of my life kind of reformulating, you know, oh, when I was a, doing this work as a singer-songwriter, it wasn't because I was, like my identity was a singer-songwriter. It was more like I have these questions about the world and that was mm -hmm. the way that I was pursuing them. And now mm -hmm. I have many other ways of pursuing them. I still write songs, still record and things like that, but um, not touring. <laughs> We're not going to go and do that anymore. But um, so but yeah, there are other ways. set up a studio ways. at home and just get into a studio and just, you know. Exactly. Or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a, it's, I have two sons who are, are jazz musicians and I fully understand what it's like to be, yeah. my son, I have an older son, Nick, who's a, is a drummer and, and he played with the National Youth Jazz Orchestra and uh, mm. they opened at Carnegie Hall and then went off to tour Europe. And while he is deeply connected to jazz music and, and music, I mean, he literally was the kid playing drums um, or banging on anything, pots and pans when he was two. So it's, it's like in his system yeah. as a regulatory mechanism for him being right in our world. And meaning, huh, I say our world as, a, as though we all share the same sort of <laughs> psycho-emotional psycho space. But let's just let that go for a second. Uh, but he said, God, Dad, I, I can't imagine being a traveling musician because, you know, they were going city to city to city, you know, throughout Europe yeah. and eating pizza. And they were all 18 <laughs> years old or, or younger. And, and he said, I just, you know, he was a vegetarian at that stage. And he says, I just can't imagine, you know, what it's like. Because it's a, it's a incredible, um, it's an incredible draw on your resources. And I always think of that in terms of also theater musicians or theater performers or um, Broadway theater performers specifically, which I like. Uh, and the outpouring of that energy every single night. Gosh, you got to be really good at regenerating somehow. Oh um, yeah, or you can be like me and not be good at it and not realize it mm. <laughs> until yeah, until, until everything kind late. of falls apart. Yes, yeah. yeah. And I mean, it, what was funny to me is that I always imagined myself as being a kind of like impulsive artiste type, like just impossibly creative and just you know nobody can tie me down. And then um, what was fascinating is that as soon as we weren't touring anymore, nobody was more surprised than me that like I just fell right into a number of routines just mm. when left to my own devices like what mm. i needed was a, was a lot more predictability and routine and kind of like um st stable practices and rituals and things like that and i was like what is this all about so mm. <laughs> yeah i think part of my work now is helping creatives um to get into touch with mental health what is it what is trauma what is secondary mm. trauma what might you need in order to be healthy how does that coincide with your career and how does it conflict and with a little bit more awareness going into it you can yeah. get by a little bit longer perhaps <laughs> than i did well i'm so interesting about the idea of asking the right questions i think it's it was louis armstrong 
yeah, I'll paraphrase here. You know, the most important notes were the ones I didn't play. But I'm not sure that mm -hmm. actually translates across to the most important questions or the ones I didn't ask. But but you have this idea um, about asking better questions, I think. You know, how do we find yeah. the questions? To your point, the things that the people don't talk about or the questions that they haven't asked um, sometimes are the most important ones. Um, but what does it mean for you as an artist, as a researcher, you know, as a human to be trying to ask better questions? Mm. I mean, a lot of times that has to do with the bubble or the paradigm that you find yourself in and how can you knock on some kind of door or wiggle something loose to get outside of what you've kind of accepted as being the way things are. Mm. And sometimes, you know, to what extent is a problem that you're experiencing in your work or in your life an inherent problem that you're going to have to go through no matter what? And to what extent might that problem be a problem because you're thinking of it in a pretty small way and you don't realize that there might be a solution outside of that if you could ask the question differently? So, and sometimes like if you think about health, this can come up in like really obvious ways. Like if somebody is struggling with um, anxiety, if somebody thought like, oh, the problem is that we don't have a good enough medication for this person. If that was the mm. question they were asking, how do we get a better medication? Then, you know, they're going to go down a path toward a better medication. And that could be really great. But what if the question was more like, what is this human need in order to thrive rather than being anxious? Then all of a sudden you've opened up a whole landscape of possible paths to go down. And so sometimes asking the better question is just about how do you, um, how do you resist the kinds of, well, sometimes the way that I say it is like, can we question the premise there with a capital Q and a capital P? Mm -hmm. What are the, what's the premise that you've accepted maybe without realizing it? What are the assumptions that you're making without even realizing it? You might need somebody to come in who's not only from the outside of what you do, but maybe from some completely different field than, than what you yeah. do to just see it in a different way and ask a question that you wouldn't have thought to, you wouldn't have thought to ask because you're too close to it. Yeah, and that's so interesting for me because I know as a creative, you know, uh, you know, I'm an architect and artist. Um, I can bang out five chords on a guitar enough to maybe <laughs> painfully move myself through a James Taylor song or an Eagles tune or something. Nice. <laughs> but I know for sure that I I I like creating alone, but I find the energy of a group collaborative sort of experience way more fruitful often uh, mm. because someone is going to say the thing that I didn't think of or there's that really curious associative learning process or associative sort of thinking process where all of a sudden someone says something and then that triggers the potential solution to the challenge I had been noodling around for a long time. So I actually really like and enjoy doing it, you know, creative things, um, except for painting, which is pretty solitary anyway. Uh, but when in the office, for example, I much prefer those creative group sessions where you're bouncing off of each other and, and, and finding the energy between um, as, as the driver um, of, of finding solutions. So, yeah. yeah, whatever ways you can get some kind of outsider perspective. I've always been a little like I'm such an introvert and I do my best thinking when I'm kind of left on my own. But what's funny is that my my brain has found these other ways to get that same kind of interaction. Mm. Like uh, all of my books, if you were to like go to my bookshelf and pull one off, there's this whole conversations happening in the margin with that author. Um, it's just like, how can we think about, and you know, yeah, how can we think about what we're being told as something that's a dialogue that's open to back and forth and give and take and push and pull rather than as something that is just handed to us? And yeah. some of that is just simply critical thinking, but sometimes it's just creative thinking, like what you're talking about. How can yeah. I receive what somebody's sharing in this room, whether it's something musical or something intellectual, and then let that 
let that circulate through whatever is me of a me and then come out on the other side as something slightly changed and what happens then. Let's go backwards just for a second because yeah. um, we could go down that, that rabbit hole we were just on for a while. But let's go back to what the lab does, like its purpose. And, and as a researcher, what are, the, what are some of the things that you're pursuing? And I know I, I have a number of things in my head, um, but if you can go at it broadly now, then we can dig down into some of those initiatives that you're actually um, responsible for running or creating or, or um, coming up with. Yeah. So the International Arts and Mind Lab is in the uh, School of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University, and it's really tasked with researching, in the broadest sense, the impacts of the arts on human brains and bodies. And we do that in a number of ways. I mentioned that my background is in public health, so I'm often thinking about what are the impacts of the arts on brains and bodies from a kind of systems level, from our structures, from our institutions, but also at a population level. How do the arts affect um, whole communities or how are communities utilizing the arts? And then of course, how do, how do the arts affect us individually and how might, what might we need to learn from that in order to develop better policies, better systems, better institutions and practices in our healthcare systems and things like that. So that's a lot of the, uh, the, the work that I've done. So with the lab, you know, we had a, um, a huge review of how music has been used to address serious mental illness, for example. We've done some work looking at how an organization called Sound Mind Live really recently. They work with all kinds of amazing music artists, Grammy-winning artists all over the world, and they're trying to figure out not trying to figure out, they're already doing it, but they want to know more from a scientific perspective of how it's working when musicians from the stage share about mental illness and share about resources. And if those resources are made available at these concerts, how does that increase awareness, education, connection among people, access to those resources, et cetera. So we've been doing some research around that. And of course, looking at effects of spaces and places and aesthetics on human responses and well-being, and that can include workplaces, education, also healthcare spaces and things like that. So mm. You can imagine that um, the world of the arts, quote unquote, the arts is like an impossibly vast universe <laughs> and the yeah. world of like human well-being uh, most broadly understood is also a vast universe. So when you pull these things together, there's kind of like an infinite number of things that you could begin exploring, which is part of the fun of what we get to do. Maybe the most difficult aspect of our work is narrowing down what we're going to focus on at any given time and choosing from among the many, the many worthy projects we could be exploring and no lack of them i can imagine which is right. which is super interesting you know it's i had um interviewed um susan meg Semen, um and ivy yeah. ross previously who's a colleague of yours well uh, susan is a colleague of yours and and we had this discussion i said you know it seems to me not even that it seems to me i i think i i know this to be true about us humans um and the short time we've actually been on this planet sapiens let's mm -hmm. just start there that we we have long been banging on logs and dancing around fires and and uttering other sounds other than words or what we now mm. consider to be spoken language long before actually language formally developed and written language even even longer still and so it doesn't surprise me actually that these that the arts and I'm going to and I think like you just said in the broadest you know yeah. conception of what that means from dance and poetry or literature to visual arts to uh, all, uh, sculpture, whatever it is, 3D architecture and design, I'll, I'll put those into the bucket, yeah. why not? That they are fundamental to who we are uh, in terms of just being human and how 
you know, the rationalists <laughs> um, didn't do us a very good service by discovering that, you know, we were we should be all up on our head to discover the <laughs> or to be able to solve the problems of our world. After all, you know, the universe gave us big brains, um, and we presumed that to be the reason why we were on top of the quote unquote food chain. But uh, it seems like those things, like the arts, are truly part of who we are at a much more profound level. Although we have learned to use language like you might have as a songwriter or as a poet or um, as an author of, of books and papers um, to express those ideas. Um, so it just, it's, it does, it's not a stretch for me to understand that those things that are so deeply rooted in our DNA can also be um, pulled forward into our experience now in a more profound way to make us feel better. Um, or mm. to help solve some of those challenges that we might be facing or anxieties, whatever whatever the case may be. Yeah, kind of like get us out of a pretty narrow. We we like humans like to be certain. We like to mm. know what's coming, what we're doing, and we can kind of inadvertently or without realizing it slot ourselves into really narrow spaces. And then we think like this is where we live. This is just what is, and we don't realize that we've actually shut out a lot of things. And that can make us feel a little bit more comfortable, but it also limits our capacities and limits our options, whether you're talking about the work that you want to do or growing your impact, or whether you're yeah. talking about the things that we can learn, the ways that we can connect. Mm -hmm. But yes, I all, I'm often saying that, you know, we evolved as humans to make and share art for a reason. Like it does something for us, or we would have abandoned these practices millennia ago. So mm -hmm. the idea, basically, we ignore that fact at our peril, <laughs> you know, to yeah. our detriment, for sure. Like, why, why did we evolve to do this? And one of the most fascinating aspects of the answer to that for me is that one of the things that the arts does for us is expand our capacity for communication. There are things that we cannot know or think of or um, share or process or bear witness to outside of these um, kind of more expanded ways that we've evolved to be able to understand the universe and ourselves. And we've now called that the art. So, but that's a, we've, you know, we kind of put that name on it. It's not like something was the art and then that's why humans started to do it, right? We right. just knew that as humans, sometimes if you're feeling really excited, you need to jump up and down. There might not be a word to say about how you're feeling, but your body says it, or this is why we dance, some people dance, or this is why we might sing something rather than just saying it. There's mm -hmm. a, this expanded range of communication, which we need as humans because the human life is really complex and difficult and beautiful and vast. And we need some kind of, um, <laughs> if we try to narrow that down to what we can do when we're being very zipped up and like professional and, you know, um, spot on with some kind of narrow idea of what it means to be appropriate in a public space or something. Right. When we try to tie life up into that narrow thing, we that's when we create additional suffering for ourselves or yeah. we limit our opportunities. You're speaking to the converted over here on that one. <laughs> I know, yes. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I, I probably have said this before on the, on the podcast. Um, you know, I grew up uh, in a family with a father who was a dentist, a mother was a nurse, an older brother mm. who was a biochemist, and I was clearly the the uh, sensitive, <laughs> emotional, you know, boy of five boys in the family oh, who wow. clearly had a, a a penchant for painting and arts and things like that. And um, you know, I think there's there's there was sociolo societal things that were pressures. You know, don't don't be too ebullient, don't be too enthusiastic. Mm -hmm. So don't like literally curb your enthusiasm. And art is a great thing, but you're never going to make a living at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, um, not in the way that I think my father would have assumed. 
and I, I said actually at his memorial this past summer, uh, he died at 97 at the beginning of the pandemic, not because mm-hmm. of, but just because he was 97 years old. Um, but I said, you know, it's interesting. My dad kept me away from considering art as a, as a legitimate career, which I, mm-hmm. which I had to sort of, I think in some sense, stuff that. I went into being an architect, which was, which was great. It was a good combination of the sciences and yeah. the arts, which ended up being so far a wonderful career. Um, but the, the interesting thing that I said um, when I was memorializing him, I said, you know, he, I, I think I, underst- I understood where his heart was at. You know, what, what he wanted mm. didn't make any sense to me as a young teen or a young adult. And, and I was, I think, bitter about that, you know, um, not having chosen that. But I always found a way to do art and, and to paint and to draw because it was my first love. But then now in my, let's say, you know, the later part of my life, you know, um, I can go back to art, not because I have to make a living at it, but simply because I can do it for the joy of it. Mm. And, and there's a very different sort of emotional attribution, if I could say that, you know, emotional resonance to doing art now that's purely for being in the flow state, you know, and not the stress of thinking, I got to crank out this painting so I can get paid and and make sure the lights are going to stay on next month or next week. Uh, And that that is a fundamental shift that in a way, I think he saved me from the Mm. angst of having to be the artist. Um, And I never have believed in the starving artist mentality, but I think that in in now my I'm gonna say more mature years, I've been able to reframe that hmm. and and see a different point of view. Where now I have the good fortune to be able to do it for fun and for joy, um, rather yeah. than having to make a living at it. Mm. I mean, it is so different. There's really fascinating research out of the UK. Uh, George Musgraves and Sally Ann Gross have a book called "Can Music Make You Sick." They've been mm. doing studies for several years now of these higher rates in the music industry of mental illness, especially depression, anxiety. Um, and they've been trying to get to the bottom of that. Why is this happening? And the, the research has basically, I mean, this won't surprise your listeners, but like the, the research has basically shown that it's certainly not the music, the practice of making music or singing or things like that, that are, that's making people more prone to mental illness. It is the business of the music Mm. industry. It is the Mm -hmm. terrible working hours. It is disconnection from important people in your life. It is, you know, the, the grind of it, the constant, a lot of times the financial precarity of it, all of these things that kind of combine to make this a situation where people are really going to, uh, really going to suffer a bit more. And in my work now, I have, um, I developed training in mental health and trauma informed practice designed specifically Mm -hmm. for creatives because, uh, I'm signing up. (laughs) <laughs> well, I found that, you know, people tend to think of like, who needs a training in trauma-informed practice? Maybe that's teachers or social workers or therapists. It's certainly not artists. And I was thinking for myself, I had a lot of secondary trauma from the stories and things that I encountered um, at my shows that I was just bearing up under because I thought sure. that was just my job. I didn't know that it was anything that I could get support for. It never would have occurred to me. But then also some of the other ways that I could have taken care of myself if I would have known then what I know now about trauma-informed practice. But to your point, what I wind up telling a lot of um, people who are who are making their money from the creative practice that they love is that there is the creative practice that you participate in that has helped you in your life uh, to be well, to express yourself, to get into flow, to, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is that you need to do to be a healthy human. And then there's that work that you're doing for the, the industry that you're in. In my case, I was writing songs for this industry. And at some point, uh, 
these things conflict just a little bit. The fact that I was writing songs uh, that because that was how I expressed my life was ne was um, never not tied up in the fact that I could imagine myself recording that song, eventually playing that song for people. I wanted that song to hit home. I wanted people to understand it and get it. And there, it kind of muddied the, the original reason that I came to the music. And that is okay for that to happen. It's not like that should never happen. And oh, what a terrible thing that this process that used to be pure isn't pure anymore. Like, I don't, that that's neither here nor there. It was more like, that's okay, but you do still need something that isn't tied up in that industry. So if it yeah. used to be that creative practice and that's what you went to, awesome, just recognize that that might not be able to play the same role that it used to. And can you find kind of like another separate thing? So, you know, it might be going on a hike now. It might be, you know, taking up, some completely different creative practice, like knitting or something that you're never going to try to sell to anybody. But um, just those kinds of additional awarenesses that we need as creatives to both to lean into the thing that the creative practice has always done for us. And then also to reckon with the realities of what happens when we try to integrate that with making a living. Yeah. And then also, not for nothing, we do need to structurally change a lot of the practices that make creative work so difficult for yeah. for so many artists no <laughs> that's for true given uh, oh gosh there's i think uh, four rabbit holes there and i'm going to try to only go into into one which is you know, that's a great uh, quote by sir ken robinson right we all grow creative we just have it educated out of us or uh, mm. you know, to paraphrase him in in these sort of systems that are in place post-industrialized um systems that don't don't really work i think either in education or in a lot of other ways you know in corporate environments or as such uh, that just aren't in tune, I think. Yeah. They were set up and they were probably effective when we all had to, you know, shovel coal into a furnace to make more whatevers or screw caps on tops of toothpaste caps. Um, but I think there's so much more now uh, that is, I mean, those are antiquated systems that I think, I think we need a total rethink on a lot of systems like education, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, but it seems to me a lot of what the work is, uh, that you do, and you know, if you if you go through the website, and, and we'll make sure we provide um, those links um, in, in the show notes, uh, is about you know reframing and reimagining the status quo. Um, you know, whether and that could be in health, or it could be in education, or you know, or and or workplaces, right? Because you you do go into corporate environments and and um, yeah. give workshops and seminars there. That's a pretty broad uh, segment of of different places <laughs> of of interaction, but. It sounds like, you know, I always call it the new possible. Like, you know, you're, it seems like mm. you're trying to bring the new possible and, and break these, the, you know, to be poetic, the shackles of the status quo. Um, tell me more about your thinking about that mm. and, and how, and how you, you work to do that in, in any of those environments. It could be in health and education and workplaces. Yeah, I think a lot of it is just recognizing, uh, I think, from years of being a creative, you're sort of taught, like you learned that nothing, nothing that I see is necessarily, nothing is what it necessarily seems. So whatever we're accepting as a given here may not actually be a given. And then also nothing is as it must be. As a, as a creative, you're constantly living in a scenario of like, um, what can change here? And that's, can, you can even conceive of that at the most basic level of like, this poem didn't exist five minutes ago, and then I just wrote it, and now it exists. So nothing is as it must be. Nothing is the way that it is now because something faded. It's here because we've built it. You know, James Baldwin said, we made the world that we're living in, and we have to make it over. And so sometimes I think of part of my work as kind of bringing my <laughs> neurodivergent brain, my creative 
my lifelong creative practice brain into a situation and being like, what, what are you seeing here? What are you accepting here that we might be able to jiggle loose a little bit so that you can recognize what could be possible? Like, a, um, what I love about the intersection of arts and health is that it's kind of a, just a, a concrete example of this, that nothing is as it must be, that the idea that, that whatever's happening in a music venue is separate from what could or should be happening in a clinician's office, that's made up. Like that's not, there's nothing inherent about that. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that my brain works, I've just always been like, yeah, of course those things are, are, are connected. And a lot of times the work of the new possible has to do with tearing down silos or helping people to realize that you don't have to stay in your lane. There isn't a lane. We made, we made the lane up. This was really brought home to me in my work with, uh, incarcerated girls, I founded a program called Project Uncaged, the creative right. writing program for girls that are incarcerated. And I've always said that they're my, they've been my biggest teachers, but they would write poems. And again, the same thing that I saw as a songwriter, that these girls would share really different things in their poems and songs than they ever shared in conversations, let alone on a survey or something like that. So the people who think that they know how to serve young people, what resources do young people need? How do we how do we set them up to thrive and succeed? The people who think they know what's going on in these young, young people's lives, they don't know. It's because they're listening in really limited ways. So we would um, publish books of the girls' poems, but um, and the girls would get them, our funders would get them, other people would get them, but also we would send them along with policy briefs to like city council members, state legislators, and say like, here are what these young people are writing about in their poems, here's what you could do in your role in order to address that. And part of that um, was just recognize, it never occurred to me <laughs> that those books only belonged in, you know, the, the, the writers themselves, their own hands, like, oh, we're going to make a book and give it right back to you. Of course, it, they, they deserve to have that. And that's priority number one, they get their own book that they wanted. But um, it never occurred to me to limit it there. Like, it's kind of like your brain is automatically going, you know, where else does, where else do these poems need to be read? Who needs to mm -hmm. see these? And, and exactly to your point, as far as getting out of our heads, what I've noticed is that when people get books of poems, they treat the subject matter very differently than if you were just to hand them some statistics, or if I were just to walk in and start telling them, you know, A, B, and C codified through my own words as a scientist or something like that. But I hand the books over and they just sit there and start reading them. I've just learned to stop talking because they're not listening to me anyway. They're reading. And there's some something about the pathos, something about the raw um, interaction with these, these girls and their own lived stories that have shown up in these poems is really moving to people. And it's just another example of like, you can't separate as much as you might want to, you can't separate human beings from the way that we're moved by poems, by stories, by music. Uh, you can't separate that from our the roles that we might play in our communities as far as decision makers, resource providers, etc. So how do you marry all these things and you know recognize that the world is the world is constructed and the lanes are made up and how do we find more possibility by by recognizing how interconnected all of these aspects of our lives actually are. I love the idea that we've constructed these, you know, um, and put up guardrails around our experiences as though it should be linear, right? Yeah. From here, from here to there, and that's that's what you're going to do. But I, when you talk about the poetry, and and I find it fascinating with 
the work of young girls um, in juvenile detention centers is that it seems like something in the poetry, it, it's, it's what's between the words, you know, mm. to me in a way um, that is because the words may never fully aptly be able to describe it, although I imagine some of them get pretty close to their experiences, but they're imbued with so much other stuff that is, I call you know, between the words, it's kind of like trying to describe the ineffable, you know, the things that you can't describe. But somehow the arts has that ability to go there um, when we wouldn't otherwise. Like my wife is a singer-songwriter too. She grew up that way and multi-book author and such. And she's got an extraordinary way to to explain something. Um, and I, I just know I don't have that. To me, maybe it comes in a different way, you know, visual arts sort of as a format. But I, I find that super interesting that there's something between the words that, that comes out that is so much easier and tells the story that the numbers don't tell from some survey or some, you know, necessary, some research study that you would simply present the findings of a study and say X number of percent of people feel X and therefore you should mm. do Y. Um, <laughs> does, does, am I even in the right sort of hemisphere here? Yeah. You know? I mean, I think that part of what poetry allows and, and songs can do this too. And there are lots of other kinds of creative practices that allow it allows people to be more than one thing. Mm. Um, and you read these poems and sometimes by young people who are either not sharing anything or what they share kind of can come across as very cold and hard. They've learned how to protect themselves in, in, in the ways that they need to. And then they write a song and it's sometimes unbear or a poem and it's just unbearably soft. Mm -hmm. It's just unbearably vulnerable. And um, I think the times that I've cried the most has been their writing because you, you just realize that like this, this individual, like every single one of us has a world of things going on and in these typical conversations and interaction you're seeing such a tiny sliver of it and yeah. there's something about the creative practice that gives you um this every time this like new insight into how absolutely vast each one of us is there's something so beautiful and so powerful about it there's a um a poem a young person wrote that i quote all the time that she was writing about you know, the, I think the prompt was something about like, what landscape are you? And she wrote a poem about being a road in the middle of nowhere. Something like I'm narrow, but I can still get you where you need to go. Uh, and it, there's, I'm a, and the second part of the poem was like, I'm a meadow, wide and open. I have a lot of room for you. That was the last yeah. line of the poem. I have a lot of room for you. And I've told so many people like, I can't think of a better way to express love than to tell somebody, I have a lot of room for you. And for that young girl to say that to, who knows who the kind of imagined audience is of that poem, but to say in the situation that she was in and the circumstances that she was meeting in her life and how difficult that was, that her sentiment in that moment was, I have a lot of room for you. How beautiful, you know, um, and how powerful for her to have a way to express that given the way that the system tends to view her and view somebody yeah. in that situation. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is because they're good therapy sessions. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, but so let's, just for a moment, I want to go back to this idea of prescriptive, because there's an interesting dichotomy or paradox, I think, here that um, it seems to me that the Western world, you know, medical model is about diagnose, classify, you know, determine some course of treatment, which is often a medication route, and not discounting, let's say, the great effect of pharmaceuticals, 
and these days I think psychedelics are making a, a comeback. What role does arts play? I think we've been sort of dancing around it, but what, what role can the arts play in terms of how we treat mental health um, in general or, or just in general health? Well, I will say if anybody's interested in that, we just uh, published a big field guide called uh, Arts on Prescription, a field oh, guide. I'm for so you. glad because that's where I was going. <laughs> Question oh, <good>. part, part <laughs> B. Like, do you happen yes. to have something? <laughs> we so, do. It's free. Yes, yes, Please go, go get it. Um, yes, a massive field guide that's just uh, designed to be an incredibly practical resource to tell you what the heck Arts on Prescription even is, where did it come from, what's the research behind it, and then how to do it in your community, that you don't have to wait for this to exist, you know, um, Nationwide in the U.S., like if you feel that there's a partnership that's possible in your own hyper-local community, here's how you could go about establishing that. But yeah, I mean, a big part for me, from a public health standpoint, there's always an emphasis on the larger question of what do human beings need in order to thrive? So by the time you get into the healthcare system or into a clinician's office, a lot of times something has gone wrong or you're not feeling well or you're not able to function the way that you would like to and so you're seeking some kind of answer to like um, to fix something or resolve something but long before that happens there's a lot of things that could be done to set human beings up to be able to flourish and in the uh, big focus over the last many decades on the biomedical model and our and our excitement about medicine and all of the good that medicine and technology can do in some cases we start to lose sight of how do you just build a world that is as conducive as possible to human thriving. <laughs> and um, I often go back to the World Health Organization's definition of health, which is that mm. it is health is complete physical, mental, and social well-being. Uh, that, that's a really high bar, that word complete. <laughs> complete physical, mental, and social well-being. And the definition says, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. Uh. And so... I think if you think about our healthcare system, even if you like type in emojis in your phone, like if you typed in health, all of the emojis that come out up have to do with like medicine and healthcare. And we've learned, we've kind of been trained as a society to think about health as, you know, am I not sick? Am I not suffering? Rather than what is here? Do I have well-being? And from a public health standpoint, the best that you can do for people is to imagine, zoom back out, back up, go upstream, before you're pulling people out of the river, you know, with your clinicians, can we go upstream and find out why they're falling in in the first place? Yeah. You know, can we can we mm. set people up in a community to thrive? And what's really great about thinking about the arts and the intersection of the arts with health is that it helps us to start imagining the the idea of integrating arts with health helps people to start imagining what does it mean for humans to be well, to feel well, sometimes even in the midst of suffering. What would make a human being say that they have a high quality of life? And we start to realize that that has to do with having a sense of meaning, of purpose, of you know, connections, of being able to pursue things that are interesting or that you know, being able to feel curious and pursue that curiosity, uh, being able to feel creative, having some agency, some sense of efficacy, these kinds of things that aren't related to you know, what medication you're taking. And they're not even related to whether you have a diagnosis or not. They're related to something larger. And so we're seeing with arts and prescription, uh, some of the ways that that's being used for mental health is not necessarily to replace medication or to replace, you know, right. typical forms of therapy, but how do you infuse people's lives with the things that, this is the way that sometimes I say it as somebody with a history of major depression, what is it that makes you want to be here? And how can we make sure that that is available to you? What, how do we make sure that our communities are set up to be communities where human beings 
um, want to, to be around, can connect, can pursue the things that make them uh, feel alive and can find their own sense of flourishing, whatever that might mean for them. Yeah. And that means that we're going to have to connect our healthcare system with many more things than just our typical kind of like therapies and pharmaceuticals. If I may, um, let's try a little provocation here. And I actually, I liked that term was often used in the um, intentional spaces um, summit, um, often between the panelists and, and the moderators of panels. And let's just try to take it from the point of view of being a provocation to sort of expand our thinking on this. Um, that all, and I'll, I'll, forgive me for sounding trite when I say this, mm-hmm. that all may sound great, but it also <laughs> sounds really great because I'm white and I live in a Western world where I have a whole lot of privilege to be able to, to do some of those things. When we talk about flourishing, for example, I have the very good fortune to have born it, been born into a circumstance, but that is not the case for a lot of people who are in disadvantaged societies, who are um, minority groups. Uh, um, mm. I mean, you could keep on going down the line. So, and I've read, I've read through the Arts on Prescription, and I do think it's extraordinary. And, and folks, there's like 118 pages of content and references, which is terrific because at each section you give, okay, now this is terrific, and there's a whole lot of resources you can go and, and dig further for further investigation and, and learning. Is it universally applicable? Or, I mean, am I, and I don't mean to say that in a way that confronts you on this issue as it being yeah. not. I'm just actually curious about it's not the same for for all people who are not born into my particular circumstance. So is flourishing a, a nice to have? I, I imagine it's a, it's a absolute necessity to have. It comes to be in very different ways for different people, right? And, yeah. And, that, uh, and so when you talk about prescription, it seems to be, this is where I find slightly the paradox in that, and my gentle provocation is, 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 is a prescriptive for whom exactly? And does it fit? And does it allow for the broader experience or broader opportunity to apply the rules within very different contexts? Yeah, I think there's a kind of a couple a couple of questions here that I'm happy to chat about. There's a um, the idea of flourishing in general, certainly uh, who has access to flourishing is one of the most important questions of public health in general, of looking at health equity, health disparities, racial equity, um, mm-hmm. oppression, and things like that. So who has access to this is such an important question. But then it's also the interesting thing about that those dual halves of the definition of health that I mentioned earlier. Is it the absence of disease or is the pre- is it the presence of well-being? It's, it's the combination of them, right? But if you aim your health systems at the absence of suffering, the absence of disease. You never have to create the presence of anything ultimately. But if you aim for the presence of well-being, you have to accommodate the absence of disease. You have to be working for that. So when we think about what are we going to focus on, what are we going to prioritize, we can either say we we need to prioritize making sure that um, everybody has their basic needs met and remedying the fact that people don't. Or we can say, Fundamentally, we have to build communities where everybody has access to the things that humans need to thrive. And then we are um, shoring that up for everybody. And of course, always with a um, with an eye toward who is most in need and who has been denied these services for mm-hmm. um, far too long and have access to those. When it comes to prescription in the Arts and Prescription Field Guide, we actually have a little section that's like, we recognize that this word prescription is is not great. We kind of use it 
<laughs> used it on purpose. Damn uh, the English language. I just, it's like. <laughs> exactly. No matter what you do, you're going to. Um, and we wanted to use the term arts and prescriptions so that we could call to mind that image of a doctor like writing on a script pad, like go to a museum or something like that. And we wanted people to kind of be like, is that what this means? So that we could be like, yeah, kind of, but let's invite yeah. you into more of this conversation. But ultimately, we don't want things like this to become prescriptive, right? Um, in the sense of like, a lot of times, especially in the US and our healthcare system, having to get a prescription for something becomes just a, another gatekeeping scenario that having in some countries, once you get a prescription, that means that you get access to that for free. And that happens with a lot of social prescribing programs in places like the UK because of the mm -hmm. NHS. But in the US, you in have Canada a prescription. Canada too, by the way. Yes, yes. <laughs> Socialized healthcare, yeah. Yes. But um, in, in the US, you get a prescription. That doesn't mean that you can afford what, what might be $1,200 for that medication, right? right. Um, or some people who are in uh, chronic pain, and every time they go to fill the prescription, they're put through the ringer as far as because they, they're labeled as being drug seeking or things like that. And it's a really demoralizing situation. So we certainly don't want arts and prescription to be associated with this gatekeeping phenomenon. And we certainly don't want there to be a scenario where people cannot access these fundamental um, human, the human right to cultural expression and creative expression. We don't want to make it like you can only access that if some person in some kind of health authority position tells you that you're allowed to, right? And we also don't want a situation where the only things that are available to a patient that comes through is, you know, a form of art or creative expression that doesn't resonate with them. So yeah. the, the arts and prescription field guide, we really um, home in on the importance of if you're creating a program like this, it's absolutely fundamental that the people who are most affected by this program be in charge of it, be leading it, be deciding uh, who needs this, how should they access it, what kinds of programs um, and cultural and creative opportunities should be part of this so that we're never, we're never kind of like approaching these these programs like we have too often in the past in this kind mm -hmm. of like white supremacist Mm -hmm. lens of like, this mm -hmm. is what the powerful people in our social dominant norms like. And so this is what we're going to offer to everybody, regardless of whether it's resonant for them and whether it's meaningful to them. The whole point is that people should be able to access something that's meaningful to them. And that re that means that those those people who are going to be using the service have to be in charge of helping make it. Make it work. You had said earlier in a, in a previous conversation, I actually quite liked the term um, because you were just talking about social norms. And it reminded me of a, a term you used where I was talking about neurodivergent and and you just said well the other way to think of it is, is that everyone else is just neuroconformist mm. um, and that yeah. we have these structures about normality or conformity or all those other things which would I think we would do well to dispel I think we had talked about Charles dr. Charles Lim in, in a previous conversation and and he studies the neural correlates of creativity by putting jazz musicians into fMRI machines and have yeah. them doing just improv, right? Um, and I actually came in contact with him at uh, Music and the Brain. Uh, now, maybe NIH had some connection to that, I believe, and mm. the National Endowment for the Arts at uh, the Kennedy Center a number of years ago, and I was fascinated with this. A, because I have sons who are jazz musicians, but also, you know, where creativity lurks in the brain mm. and, and how it comes to be that, you know, it happens. So, but, but what I found interesting about that, and also I want to try to draw a connection between what you're doing at the Arts and Mind Lab. Th these are fascinating areas of study, and, and so... <laughs> um, we can so we can d discover that the default network takes over when you're in the middle of a jazz improv 
and so mm. um, to what end do, do we pursue the kind of research that you're doing what what's you know is there a larger yeah. sort of goal aside from maybe just the obvious which is if we know this we'll be maybe more healthy and we might not likely make some of the stupid mistakes that we make that actually make people unhealthy. Um, yeah. But what is your thought about the, the end game that we're trying to, to, you know, reach for in the research you do? Oh, it's a, such an important question. And you know what you ask, you ask a hundred researchers and you'll get 300 answers, I think. <laughs> but um, <laughs> the, you know, at the Arts and Mind Lab, it's been really important to us. One of the things that drew me to it is that it's a translational research lab, which just means that it's incredibly important to us that whatever we're researching have a very clear impact on the real world. And if we can't imagine what that potential impact would be, that doesn't mean that the thing shouldn't be researched, but it would mean that we wouldn't research it. We would leave that for maybe a basic scientist or somebody else to explore. And then once it became something that's potentially translatable, maybe we would take it up then. So all of the projects that we do are designed to like, okay, if we learn more about this, for example, I mentioned SoundMind Live earlier. If we mm -hmm. learn that when there are um, really well-loved musicians talking about mental health from the stage, if we learn that that helps their audience members also disclose and talk about it, that it makes people more likely to go seek the, the uh, resources and care that they themselves need, then that tells us that here's another way that in your community, not just in your healthcare systems, but in your community, in these practices that people already love and are drawn to, we can use these on purpose, intentionally, to help create more spaces for humans to be allowed to be human, which means that sometimes we need care, we need additional help, we need help beyond just ourselves or even our friends. Sometimes we might need a professional service and how do we connect better than that? And it can help give us new ideas, not only like, oh, not only can live concerts do this, but what are other community practices that people are already doing, already love, that we could figure out, okay, well, how can we use this thing that people are already doing to talk about this issue that people might be experiencing and how can that help connect them? So this is just one example of how we're always thinking about how is what we're researching able to connect up to something else. To your point, sometimes there are things that people are researching that we don't yet know how that's going to be useful. And, and certainly brain studies have often been like that. We mm -hmm. might want to go exploring in the brain and find out why thing A leads to response X. <laughs> but um, And we might not know how to use that. But in the future, our knowledge that, that happens can help people to design therapeutics and treatments um, that because we have a better understanding of the way that the brain works. But certainly uh, this for me has never been uh, just a curiosity or like, wouldn't it be cool to know a little bit more about this? I will say, David, that Please. there are a lot of people who for, for whom the science of how the arts impacts human beings, what's exciting about that to them is that they think that's going to validate and legitimate some legitimize <laughs> what's Le the word validate and legitimize what i'll they... use legitimate i'm, I'm going to use that <laughs> we'll just make it a hence, word. <laughs> henceforth um i'd like it to legitimize has it. the advantage of rhyming with validate which i kind of like <laughs> but um okay, there's a lyric I, i'm just saying <laughs> we'll do it we'll make it <laughs> okay. but um they're hoping that these kinds of studies can legitimize what they what they love and what they value this mm. you know they know that the arts have been really meaningful to them but a lot of times it seems like it's undervalued and devalued by society or by other things mm. and maybe if the medical establishment comes in and says look at all these you know concrete ways that we now understand that the arts are affecting people maybe that will give this a source of 
um, validation or additional funding or something that can make people feel yeah. like this thing that I love is also going to be appreciated by other people. And I have a lot of um, sympathy for that. And it's certainly true in some cases that you need some kind of like basis of, of evidence or um, before people can confidently make things like policy changes or economic investments, of course. And then sometimes for the arts advocates in my life, I'm also coming back with just remember that people don't make decisions based on evidence, maybe very often at all in the human experience. We want to, we want to think that we do, but, um, you know, even if we made decisions based on evidence in the U.S., we would have universal health care. We would have a universal basic uh, income, yeah. you know, so just to balance these things, to hold them both in tension that like, yes, it could be useful to have more knowledge about the concrete ways that this is affecting our brains and bodies so that we can make concrete decisions and maybe help elevate the value of this to the human experience for people who are not valuing it right now. And then also there are plenty of things that we have a ton of evidence about that we still can't seem to get policymakers to move on as far as even just making sure that people have a safe home where they can lay right. their head at night. You know, we can't even make that happen for um, every U.S. citizen. So, you know, these so holding these things in tension that, uh, yes, it's beautiful to have more research. And that's not necessarily going to be the source of validation and security and um, legitimization that people are, are seeking, mm -hmm. that there's got to be a, there's also culture shifts involved and social norms involved that we can also change ironically via the arts as well so i i, I hear completely what you're saying and i will say that i'm, I'm going to use air quotes a guilty of the validation sort of paradigm that as a creative person and as an architect working in you know for 30 plus years we would often be we would propose uh that we would create a, a design um of some kind and uh, even be so far, even go so far as to say, and because we'll do this, we will expect humans to do that. Mm. And this will be a great space for them because of all these things. And part of that was built on intuition. Part of that was built on experience. And just sometimes it was arrogance and assumptions um, about what we, <laughs> we believed to think we knew about humankind. And, and often the, the question would be, well, how do you know? You know, I mean, how yeah. can you be sure that they would do that? And I actually have adopted that more now. How can we be sure? And so the defaulting to the research as a supporter of the intuitive experience-based assumptions about why we could do X and it would lead to Y has been a little bit of a crutch. We're saying, no, 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 it's not my opinion. I can turn to 100 different studies mm -hmm. who are going to tell you that pretty much 100% of the people will end up doing this because... Which leads us into this subject of neuroesthetics. So maybe we can take a couple of minutes if we can dive into that um, in terms of uh, what the lab is doing in this. And I guess it, it really is the everything you're doing is connected to the idea of neuroesthetics. Is, is that a is that another good assumption on yeah, my part? You could you could make that argument depending on how you're describing how you're defining neuro and how you're defining aesthetics. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a, two other episodes here. I could just see it. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, that general idea. And and, and listen, yeah. I want to say that I um, I love research. I love being able to point to things and being like, this is how we know that X tends to happen when when we do Y. Like uh, I am the first person to say that I want to know that, and I. 
um, given my background, especially with a kind of like uh, really fundamentalist religious background, I'm really not interested in things that feel right or intuitions. <laughs> I really love to have something a little bit more than that. Mm. And my only caution to people is, um, although I do love intuition as well as a creative, but my only caution to people is that it's not necessarily true that the more evidence we have, the more society will value anything. No. <laughs> um, but Point neuroaesthetics, uh, neuroaesthetics, so exciting to think about because basically it's the idea that our neuroaesthetics typically has to do more with built environment and our spaces. So the lab does a lot of things that aren't necessarily built environment specific, but this but the neuroaesthetic segment of what the lab does is really about where you are in space and time. All of us are affected by the spaces that we're in, whether we like it or not, whether we want to be affected or not, whether we notice the effects or not, we are being affected. A lot of the original studies of neuroaesthetics kind of were rooted in an idea of like, what are the effects of beauty or what are the effects of a painting on somebody? And they were really, I began calling that intentional aesthetics. Like you're studying what happens to somebody when you do something that's on purpose supposed to be positive for them. And that's really cool. But the reality is that every space has an aesthetic and there is such a thing as negative aesthetics. And so what I get really interested in, especially from a public health standpoint, when we've looked at the health inequities caused by built environment disparities and air pollution, water pollution, all these different kinds of things, how can we look at aesthetics in general as something that is either helping or harming uh, maybe sometimes there's some neutral space. I don't know that I've seen it, but um, how can we get used to the idea that our spaces are affecting us mm -hmm. and then become interested from there? And how do we get intentional about that? Because if you're in a workplace, you're, the lighting of your space, the noise of it, the layout of it, all of that is affecting, for example, your employees, whether you know it or not, whether you did that on purpose or not, whether they notice it or not. So it's not necessarily a choice of how do I learn more about aesthetics so that I can just optimize my outcomes, which is sometimes how it's talked about. Mm -hmm. But it's also like, mm, you know, how can you learn more about aesthetics so that you can know whether the thing that you're doing right now might be harming, might be, might be precluding oh. you from doing the work that you're trying to do. But since you don't know about it, and again, that's just the status quo kind of thing. This is the status quo, so you think it's neutral. But the status quo is never... The status quo is never neutral, no matter what we're talking about, is never neutral. Um, and so the, the work of neuroaesthetics is how do we get more intentional? How do we learn enough to where we can make intentional choices based on our goals and based on wanting to do what's best for the most people in a given space? Right. I think that's my my position has been if, gosh, when I started studying neuroscience, I mean, I was always inter interested in psychology. And I think I always mm. was attuned to human interpersonal dynamics and interpersonal neurobiology was became a fascination, but that if you only knew a little bit about how the brain actually worked, you might likely do some things that, to your point, don't harm or, or, or mm. actually are, or, yeah, don't get in the way of what your very good intentions are, you know? Yeah. And, and I think um, we often get in our own way frequently. So you had sent out, um, I think through a newsletter, uh, a recent book that you've, um, that you've created that uh, I guess basically summarizes you know the, the four big ways to improve health through the arts. Could we take a moment just to run through that because I found it so easy to understand the nesting of these this ecosystem of of elements that really support um, health and well being. Uh, mm. Could we sort of unpack that a bit? Yeah, this is. Um, I'm so glad that you asked about this because this is a, a framework that I developed a few years ago that's been just so helpful in my own research, but um, for so many of my clients, whether they're in the arts or not. But it's based on in public health. We have this um, a model called the social ecological model of health, which is if you imagine a bunch of concentric circles, 
the innermost circle is individual level health. And then outside of that, uh, you have, you know, maybe um, interpersonal health, community health. So this is basically recognizing that whatever that individual is experiencing is affected by that individual's genetics, behaviors, et cetera, but also it's going to be affected by their community, by their interpersonal relationships. And then outside of that, it's going to be affected by um, policies, you know, related to their health, like in the United States, Healthcare isn't considered a human right. So somebody here who has a certain condition is going to have a different experience at the individual level than somebody in another country who has more access to the care that they need. And then outside of that, of course, you have societal norms, society in general, culture, and that affects our individual health. You can imagine that if somebody's going through something that's really stigmatized in one culture and they can't talk about it, they're going to have a different experience at that individual level than somebody who's in a culture where that same experience is talked about very openly. So all of these different levels of health affect us. And very often, especially in the West, when we talk about health, we tend to just focus on individual behaviors, individual factors. And we forget that there's this whole um, community and environment society that's affecting each of our ability to, to be well. So in response to that, when people have asked, how can the arts affect health? From a public health standpoint, I'm looking at how do the arts affect each of these levels of that model, not just the individual. So not just... Um, I mean, when I, if you're sitting on the airplane next to me and you ask me what I research and I say it's something to do with art and health, most people immediately say like, oh, so art therapy or like music therapy. And it's like, no, I don't do those, but you know, respect. Those are great. <laughs> those are the individual level, but the arts actually have effects at all of these levels. So if you think about, yes, there are those direct health effects that the arts can have. People use music all the time to self-medicate. People, um, or gravitate toward doodling when they need to focus. Like there are ways that we can use the arts, each of us, um, to amp to amplify our own health. And then other people who can help us do that as well, whether they're therapists or facilitators, whatever teachers, whatever the case may be. And then outside of that, the arts also can impact data. And this is maybe specific to me and my research. It's kind of my wheelhouse and my, my unique contribution in the field of public health. But the arts give us um, sources of data that we literally can't get otherwise. And this is informed by my own career, by things people shared that they weren't sharing otherwise, things that girls have shared in their poems and Project Encasia they weren't sharing otherwise. Turns out this is happening all of the time. And how can we learn more about our population's health and their needs and their well-being and their dreams and their achievements and their barriers. How can we learn about that through the arts as a source of health data or um, data of, of many kinds, education data, whatever, whatever it is that we're investigating. So the arts can improve our data. The arts can also improve education and awareness around an mm. issue. And they've done this. This is really intuitive for lots of people. Once they think about it, they're like, oh yeah, you know, there's maybe a, um, uh, an experience that you maybe wouldn't have ever opened a pamphlet about, but you watched a film and one of the characters had that experience and now you feel like you understand it and you were, you were, um, now you're aware of that experience in a different way than you were before. So the arts are so important for that. And then of course, beyond that, the fourth way, so direct benefits, data, awareness and education. And then the fourth one being uh, policy and sociocultural change, that the arts have been at the forefront of social movements for as long as we can remember, right, they can be imperative for shifting what people think are uh, what people think of as norms, for shifting people's opinions about really crucial issues, including like human rights. Or we've seen in the U.S. there are some TV shows that are often credited with shifting public perceptions of LGBTQIA rights. Mm -hmm. um, so there are so many ways that we could talk about how the arts can influence 
uh, sociocultural norms as well as policy? How do you build collective will and pressure to make the changes that are needed in order to um, make life better for more and more people? So these four big ways that the arts can affect well-being for humans it's far more than just, oh, when I play music, I feel better. That's incredibly important, close to my heart. But there's so many um, so many other ways that the arts can benefit us that, that if we paid a little bit more attention to it, we would open up so many cool doors of opportunities. No matter what field you're in, there's probably a way that the arts could enhance the work you're doing. And... And there you have it. <laughs> but you, you've, gosh, I'm, I'm going to beg for two questions um, and then we can close out. But one would sure. be, it seems to me that there's a rise in interest in, in this. And, and maybe that's not, mm. my perception isn't right, but it seems like there is to me. Is, is there a rise in people's uh, curiosity and interest and, and um, willingness to go there, so to speak? Uh, and if so, why do you think that is, that, that arts is now surfacing or coming? It's more, we're talking about it more, um, not just because of books like Susan Magsammons and Ivy Ross's book, Your Brain on Art, or uh, Sarah Goldhayden's book, Welcome to Your mm. World. I mean, those are things that I'm reading. Um, but do you have a sense of why people are tuning into this more? Is it simply because people like you are pushing more out than making more content accessible to people? Or uh. is there something else you feel that's driving it? Well, it's definitely not just your perception. We we talk in the field quite a lot about how just over the last decade, things have really exploded. And in, in fact, just probably even over the last five years, how this conversation has exploded. And I think in part, it's because there's a little bit more, the research has kind of started to accumulate. And it's not, again, it's not that the research validates things, but it puts the conversation in new spaces. It becomes a kind of like hmm. way to um, engage the conversation in educational, you know, education system in, you know, medicine, in these different um, aspects, like, you know, the workplace. So you have, you have these, this research that almost becomes a kind of like um, a, an open door to have a conversation that wasn't happening before, not because it wasn't relevant before, and not even because people weren't necessarily interested before, but there wasn't really the impetus. But then if you have a study for how the aesthetics of your workplace can affect um, productivity among your employees, then suddenly somebody's having a conversation based on that study that they might not have had just because somebody walked in and said, you know what, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I don't work very well here. So, um, so I think that there's a lot of that happening. And then, you know, I think just in general, the Cartesian mind-body split is sort of falling apart. There's just, especially the mm. young people that I talk to, they just don't buy it. Um, yeah. And none of us, well, none of us should anymore, but many of us are a little bit more tempted by it or kind of like prone to kind of like get in that sense of like, you know, my mind is who I am and my body is just this kind of like meat sack that I have to carry around with me. And, um, but I think that- It's just, it's just a vehicle to carry my head around. You yes, know? <laughs> yes. Right. And I think I think there's less and less openness to to plodding along with mm. the assumption that that's in any way even possibly real. People yeah. are, are just in, having more discussions around how their thinking affects their physical well-being, how their physical being um, affects the way that you can think. There's really concrete examples of that. So many millions of people with long COVID and brain fog yeah. where they because of something physical that happened to them they can't do the thinking that they they used to be able to do so i think that we're also seeing just many more conversations around how do we get more holistic about the way that we're talking about well-being and i think that's being reflected in the arts and health conversations as well yeah i think what i love about what you just said is it, is it points out 
uh, again, talking about assumptions, what seems to be the obvious to me is that it's a complex ecosystem of interdependencies. Yeah. And and yeah. and some, you know, some are some of those. You know, if you imagine it as as it a, as the metaphor of a universe or an analogy of a universe with a you know some sun and then planets or or things mm -hmm. uh, spinning around it that some of them are bigger some of them are smaller and their, their gravitational pull on each other is and their influence um is always changing depending on context or circumstance or uh, individuals etc so it's it's uh it's it's intriguing to sort of understand what those interdependencies are and how everything is related to everything I oh think is, yeah. yeah. I mean, I never imagined myself being in public health, but it's funny to look back on it now and think like, oh, of, of course I wound up being drawn to this field because it's a field that is just constantly sitting in systems thinking like everything mm -hmm. is connected to everything else. And you can't mm -hmm. shore up this specific health issue without looking literally at like every literally every factor of the human experience. And of course, no single researcher can actually look at every single one, but just that acknowledgement that everything that surrounds us, all of our environments, all of our interactions, all of these things affect whether we can be well or not. And being well, in turn, affects all of those other things. Yeah. Um, I think uh, it's exciting to live in that sphere of like, it can be um, overwhelming. It can sometimes be a little bit depressing, depending on what issue that you're looking at. But there's also so much hope in it because you see that nothing is nothing is in any single lane. Like I said, you're not in any silo. There's always some kind of way to reach out and connect with some other sector or field where you can find some modicum of possibility to move the needle on something that needs to change. Last question. Um, and thank you for, for being gracious with your time. Yeah. Um, what's being made in the kitchen for lunch? Can you hear? Are, are you asking because you can hear? <laughs> that was, this is this is bites time. This is the cat's. This is a. Is a it's so that's funny. a cat's food can being. Um, they're, the, okay. they're the queens. They're the queens, man. Like they're yeah. in charge. <laughs> um, that's so funny. No, the last question is: What is your hope for your work in in the world? Oh, that's a big question. I think. Wow. Oh. Who, who better than you? I mean, if, do, you need, do you need time and maybe a glass of water to answer that one? You know what? No. I think um, what I would hope for the future is that more and more people would know and embrace the fact that everything can change. That doesn't mean that it will. I'm, it's not some kind of like um, optimistic take or kind of like there's a utopia just waiting for us, but mm. that nothing, like I said earlier, nothing is as it must be. James Baldwin said, the world is before you and you need not take it or leave it as it was when you came in. And I feel like my biggest goal for my, for my own work, for my work as a creative, as a, a consultant, as a researcher, is to help people to really embrace that. That like, here, here is what it is right now, but we don't have to take or leave that as it is. This is all made up and we can choose to we can choose to work toward changing it and that doesn't make it easy it just but it does require some reimagining it requires a refusal to just let things be as it is and i think if i i think that my source of hope or what i would hope for the human project in general is to have more and more people who look out at the world and just see like well here's what it is but there's no inevitability to this like what, there's always an option 
for change. And that, again, doesn't mean that the change will be easy or simple, but it's changeable. Well, Tasha Golden, I am grateful for our connection in this conversation. You've been very gracious with your time. So um, thank you oh, so much. I'm filled you. up and I'm my, my brain is now exploded in 10 different ways. <laughs> and I'm going to go off and read um, Arts on Prescription. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's really delightful to talk to you, David. You're so welcome. Next Level Experience Design Podcast is presented by VMSD Magazine and Smart Work Media. It's hosted and executive produced by me, David Kepron. Our original music and audio production by Kano Sound. Make sure to tune in for Dialogues on Data, Design, Architecture, Technology, and the Arts wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And make sure to visit vmsd.com and look for the tab for the podcast there too. Also, remember you'll always find more information with links to content that we've discussed, contact information for our guests, and more in the show notes for each episode.